Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. I know we've had many out this summer, whether it be travel or sickness, so it's good to see so many back and uh, healthy and everything else. And as I was as we were singing together, I was just reminded of the fact and grateful for the fact that as we come together on Sunday morning, it's it really is a time to be refreshed and to be encouraged, certainly through the fellowship, through the singing, and through God's word as we uh, as we open it up and come together. And I know we all have things going on throughout the week. There's all sorts of difficulties, trials of various sorts. And there's times where it's, I know, it's hard to get here Sunday morning. And yet, I don't think I've ever regretted it, uh, being able to be together, to fellowship, the encouragement that you bring me, and hopefully I get to bring you as well. So I look forward to opening the word this morning as we continue our summer study as we've broken away from the Gospel of Matthew into the book of Haggai. You can go ahead and begin turning there, the book of Haggai. Uh, if you get to the beginning of the New Testament and take a left, you'll just go a few books and you'll arrive there. As we've been studying um, systematic theology, we're just a couple weeks in in our men's Bible study. This week we talked about the topic of bibliology, that is the study the study of the Bible. Why is the Bible important? And we talked about the authority of Scripture. And it's what we do when we come together any Sunday morning. It's the desire to open God's Word and to submit ourselves to what it has to say. What does God's Word teach? And how does my life, how does my thinking need to be conformed to that? That's why we try to infuse our music, our singing, and so much of our service with God's Word. It's for that very reason. Well, in Greek mythology, there's a story of a king, and you were probably wondering, I just talked about the portals of Scripture, and I just said Greek mythology. But there's a story of a king who turned everything he touched into gold. You know who I'm talking about. It's King Midas. You've likely heard of Midas, who was king of Phrygia, to whom the god Dionysus was said to have given the power to turn all that he touched into gold as a reward for assisting Dionysus's teacher, Salinas. However, if you remember the story, and you can actually think the practical implications of this. It didn't take him long, probably only one meal, to realize this was not a blessing but a curse. For even the food he touched turned to gold before he could eat it, and he began to starve. Depending upon the version of the story you read, this formerly greedy king is only freed from this curse after pleading and begging with Dionysus to remove this, who instructs him to bathe in the river Pactolus. Well, in his commentary on the book of Haggai, Mark Bowden notes that Haggai 2, 10 through 19, which we're going to be looking at this morning, it presents us with a people who have a powerful touch, a touch that, is also, that also has disastrous consequences, polluting and defiling everything they say and do. Their disobedience has rendered even their worship and sacrifices defiled before God. As Haggai returns to an evaluation of Israel's posture and attitude over the past 16 to 17 years, he highlights the people's disobedience, which has rendered everything from their actions to their sacrifices unacceptable before a holy God. Their sin and disobedience created the economic, societal, and spiritual crisis of the country. The curses and punishment presented by Haggai were a direct result of that sin. What they've been experiencing previously for 16 to 17 years of drought, famine, poverty, pestilence, and plague. And as the prophet begins a speech commissioned to him by the Lord 
that will ultimately describe the positive future for the people if they will continue in their renewed obedience and faithfulness to God, he pauses to remind them, to take them back, to encourage them to continue in their renewed obedience and faithfulness to God. He reminds them of their recent predicament. They've just emerged from this disastrous pattern of life, and Haggai wants to make certain that they do not miss the connection between their recent experience with ongoing consequences and comparing that and understanding that that is a result of their disobedience and sin. And so this morning we're going to look at the devastating effect and the consequences of sin illustrated to us by this period of Israel's history and the necessity of regularly purifying our lives through confession and repentance in order to maintain a healthy walk that pleases the Lord in all respects and like Israel gives us a future hope and blessing. So read along with me if you would in Haggai 2 beginning in verse 10 and we're going to read through verse 19. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offered, offered there is unclean. But now, do consider... From this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider. From this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. Pray with me. Fathers, we open up your word this morning to look at this message that was delivered thousands of years ago to the people of Israel coming out of exile by your prophet Haggai. Help us to understand, to rightly interpret, and to rightly apply it to our lives this morning. Thank you for your spirit which guides us and leads us and directs us. May he guard my words this morning. May he guard our understanding of your word. Amen. This message comes two months after the previous message of God through Haggai to the people of post-exilic Israel. And it's four months since Haggai's initial prophecy designed to shake them out of that spiritual atrophy and presumptuous disobedience. The timing of this message that he is now delivering would have been mid-December. And the people have been busy, 
But as we see in verse 15, it has not yet been to continue the work of the building itself, but more on the site preparation. To give you a little bit more context, just to make sure we have the full context in mind, Haggai is unique. Haggai is unique because within this book, within his message, the people actually responded. They responded to that initial message four months earlier. They repented. They came before him, before the Lord in repentance, turning from their ways. But now for the past four months, they've been preparing to rebuild the temple. They've been doing the site work preparation. As we see, there is not yet one stone upon another. After introducing the time of this declaration, Haggai poses an interesting question. It's not one I would expect any of us to ask someone else. The question the priests rightly answer. The question is, can one catch holiness? Can you be infected with holiness? With the ceremonial requirements of Exodus and Leviticus as the background, God highlights through Haggai that holiness cannot be indirectly transferred. And we'll break this down in just a moment. But there were specific requirements and factors to worship which made an item holy in cultic or in the cultic practices, that is the worship practices of Israel. To make them clean and pure before God. But carrying something which had been purified and then touching something else with what had been used to carry it wasn't going to make something else holy. It could not transmit holiness or purity. Well, after the priest correctly answered the first question, Haggai poses a second question. Again, a question that I've never been asked. Again, with the history of Israel's worship in the background, specifically Leviticus and Numbers, as well as perhaps even Ezekiel, which had posed a similar question. This second question is really the inverse. It's the opposite of the first. Can something impure or defiled easily pollute and defile something it touches? This time the answer is yes, it can. The priests again answer correctly. Impurity and defilement are easily transmitted. As Alden notes, this is the answer Haggai wanted because he wanted to show, what he's about to show the people, is that it is easier to fall into sin than it is to fall into righteousness. You don't accidentally fall into righteousness. You may accidentally sin. In fact, in Leviticus 4, there's a whole set of prescriptions for inadvertent sin. I don't think I've ever inadvertently done something righteous. This concept and especially with the Levitical laws behind it, it, may feel a little bit foreign to us because we don't go about our daily lives with the same concept of or ceremonial holiness and purity of items. But let me ask you this. If you had a glass of pristine, cool, filtered, refreshing water, and you came across one of our nice, humid, Georgia, muddy puddles, stagnant water, mosquito larvae, and you pour that clean, fresh water right into it, have you now made that puddle of water pure? Would you be willing to drink it? I mean, you've now cleaned it, right? You've poured clean water into it. Well, not at all. Well, then let's do the inverse. If you've got your clean glass of water and just drop a little bit of that impure water, just a little bit into it, what has happened? You've defiled. You've made it impure. You'd have to be really thirsty before you go and take a sip of that water. And in fact, you now have the likelihood of not only the water being impure and infected, but now you may become infected with who knows what. 
Think about how much more effort it takes to purify water than it does to pollute or defile it or make water dirty. We spend millions and millions and millions of dollars purifying just water. See, this is the illustration Haggai is presenting to the people, but he ties it directly to them. He says, their sin, their disobedience has polluted and infected everything around them. Not only has sin influenced them, they now are infecting and polluting everything around them with what they touch. Even their worship is polluted, and God wants nothing to do with it. And that's really no surprise that God would reject that type of worship. God has always desired clean hands and a pure heart. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 24. He has always desired worship that is predicated upon confession and repentance of sin and the pursuit of him. In Psalm 24, we read, just the first few verses, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Or Hosea, Hosea 6, 4 through 6. God asked through Hosea the prophet, What am I going to do with you, O Ephraim? What do I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Turn with me to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, we, receive, we see a similar admonition beginning down in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Look at the hope here. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As one commentator notes, from the earliest of times, it was quite clear that God wanted sincere worship first and foremost. Not the performance of worship, not just the attendance of worship, not just the sacrifice of things. He basically wanted hearts, not hands. He desired obedience rather than sacrifice. And that order of things was not changed in this post-exilic times, and it has not changed today. God still wants us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, as we studied in Matthew 6.33. The question is, do you really believe that? Do you really believe God takes seriously your life and whether you are walking in obedience or walking in sin when you show up on Sunday morning or when you go to the Lord in prayer at your home or when you show up to a Bible study? We all sin. That's not the point. The question is, are you clinging to your sin? Are you sinning willfully, knowing what you are doing is fully wrong? Or a sin you didn't realize you've been doing, been brought before you, so you now realize that sin and you've decided, I'm not going to confess that. I'm going to hold on to that. I want to keep doing that. When that's the case, when we refuse to confess and repent from sin, then God doesn't want your outward worship. God doesn't want your singing. He doesn't want your financial offerings. Instead, God wants your love and your obedience. And by the way, love and obedience are intimately connected. We already read that this morning, didn't we, in 2 John. What does he say in verse 6? And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. Love and obedience are intimately, indispensably connected. And it finishes, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Jesus said, it was recorded in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John elaborates even further in 1 John 5, 3, saying, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God wants your worship, but that is secondary to your love. My wife wants flowers, but she only wants them when she knows I love her. Otherwise, they'd be both insulting and hurtful to her. Are you taking the time to show God you love him before you offer your singing, before you offer him your words, before you offer him your finances? If not, then God says he takes no delight in them. No pleasure in these things, and your offerings is as worthless and odious to God as those of Cain. Let's ask another why question. Why does God punish disobedience? We've seen that he, he punished Israel. That's what he was walking through. He was disciplining her. Why was he doing this? Isn't that unloving? Isn't that unkind? Isn't that impatient? Wasn't that harsh? Wasn't that abusive? Well, imagine for a moment you're visiting the Grand Canyon. While they're there, you see two young families with young kids running about. 
With one, you see the parents carefully but sternly explaining the rules, laying down the restrictions, warning the children of the dangers to stay away from the edge while they observe its beauty. Later, you even see them providing discipline to one of the children who was not paying attention, getting too near the edge. The other parents just tell the children, enjoy themselves, have fun. All the while, the children run precariously near the edge. But being, quote, the loving parents they are, they don't want to impose rules or appear harsh. So instead of offering a warning or discipline, they simply say, have fun. Live however you want on the edge. You know that it's only a matter of time before disaster strikes and one or all of those children will be severely hurt, don't you? So ask yourself, which of those parents is really the loving parent? Who is demonstrating true care for their children? Does a loving parent avoid all discipline, all instruction, and all punishment for disobedience? The answer is obviously no. And yet when it comes to God, we want him to treat us like fun-loving parents who never instructs or disciplines. Thankfully, God doesn't give us what we want in this case, but what we need. He knows what's best for us. He knows what sins easily tempt us and entangle us. What spiritual dangers lurk before us. And so he will instruct and discipline and bring trials our way to prepare us for those great dangers. He does this as the loving parent who longs to protect his children from falling and experiencing grievous pain. However, it's not simply avoidance of pain, but the experience of joy and pleasure and delight that he longs for his children to realize. However, that great joy and delight will only be experienced when we are walking in obedience to him. Those first few verses, Haggai's been reviewing the history of Israel over the past 16 to 17 years. And the cycles of disobedience and the discipline that accompanied Israel's failure to repent, return to God, and re begin rebuilding the temple. That is, until now. You see, they have just responded in the past couple of months. Yes, God has disciplined them, but they've now repented. And that's where God is, ends this message through Haggai, this, this current message, on the repentance and the blessing and the hope. In verses 18 through 19, God promises that from this day, though they are still experiencing the consequences for their disobedience, as they repent and continue obeying the command of God, He will bless them. The psalmist describes the blessing of God in Psalms 1 where he writes, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It describes the blessing this way. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. In many ways, these verses in Haggai, Haggai 10 through 19, is an abbreviation of the promises of blessing and the promises of cursing and curses that would befall Israel for obedience or disobedience in Deuteronomy. The end of Deuteronomy, there are promises for blessing and then promises that follow obedience and then promises for cursing and punishment that follow disobedience. So Israel is exhorted and encouraged once more to obey. Though they have not yet realized the blessing for their obedience, they are to continue following the Lord and obeying the Lord until that faith becomes sight. Having studied Haggai for the past few weeks, it may feel a bit odd coming to this message right here. If the people have begun to obey, 
why this message and why now? If four months earlier they had really repented, why is God delivering this message now? If they've been doing the site preparation, they've been getting it ready to build, what's he doing? I mean, it certainly makes sense when they were still disobedient and rebellious, but why pile on? Whatever happened to forgive and forget, why is God continuing to remind them of their past sin? Well, first off, forgive and forget isn't a biblical phrase. Well, God offers forgiveness from the penalty of sin, which is hell. To those who repent, we may still suffer temporal consequences, some that may last as long as we live on this earth. The primary reason, though, the reason I believe God gave this message to Haggai is because Israel was getting impatient, wanting instant gratification for their repentance, and had already forgotten how deep their sin had run the past 16 to 17 years. And I think God needed to remind them. I think this is affirmed from verse 19 where God points out or agrees that, yes, your barns are still empty and the ground has not yet produced anything. But notice what he says. Yet, he affirms, he will bless their obedience. He's answering the implied question, why haven't you blessed us yet? We're still hungry. There was impatience. More dangerously, there was amnesia. Whether purposeful or through laziness, they were already forgetting that they were still reaping the consequences of nearly two decades of disobedience. And their forgetfulness or purposeful desire to ignore their previous sin was a serious problem. When we try to hide, ignore, or eliminate any reminder of our past mistakes and their consequences, we run the risk of returning to them. You may have heard the aphorism or the saying, those who forget their history are condemned to repeat it. And while that in and of itself is not a scriptural statement, it recognizes a principle we find throughout Scripture of remembering the past. The good, the bad, and the ugly, in order to see not only God's faithfulness, which we have observed the past couple of weeks, but also the consequences of sin and how God deals with both sin and repentance. Deuteronomy 4.9 God says through Moses, only give heed to yourself, keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And it's implied, your grandsons, grandsons, and your grandsons, 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 and it goes on and on. Deuteronomy 32.7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. Zechariah 1.4, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen. Or give heed to me, declares the Lord. And in the New Testament, we're pointed back to the example of Israel by Paul who says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written beforehand in earlier times, it was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then writing to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning of verse 6, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, as they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We can either avoid present pain by looking back at previous examples or having to go through that pain. And God has given us a history to look at. He's given us our own history at times to look at, to not repeat that pain and that suffering and that sin. In post-exilic Israel's case, while they had expressed repentance for their sin and had begun to obey, the consequences are still fresh. The barns have not yet recovered from the famine, the wells have not yet recovered from the drought, and their clothes probably still have holes in them. Verse 19 is answering a question that seems to indicate that some of them were beginning to question whether repentance was really worth it. Would it work? If there would really be change, if an effort at obedience was really worth it, it's been nearly four months since that initial message was delivered, two months since the last message, And for some, patience appears to be wearing thin, wanting instant results. Even though they had been disobedient for 16 to 17 years, they wanted an immediate reversal of the curses. And this desire for instant gratification is nothing new. Israel lost patience with Moses and God at Sinai. They pressed Aaron to build a golden calf for them so they could worship something now. That was weeks after a miraculous deliverance from Egypt where they plundered Egypt. The Egyptians threw money at them on their way out. Then they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and the Egyptians say, we're going to go get them back. God parts the Red Sea for them miraculously, but it doesn't end there. He then drowns the entire Egyptian army. Esau, wanting instant gratification of a bowl of soup, sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. Cain, wanting the immediate approval of the Lord but not receiving it, killed Abel, his brother, rather than go about the hard work of rightly worshiping and sacrificing to the Lord. Adam and Eve wanting the immediate gratification of being like God, of having what Satan had inferred God was withholding from them, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And today, how many times have we traded our peace with God for momentary gratification or momentary pleasure of sin? How many times have we sinned because we lost patience with the difficulty of the path toward sanctification and pleasing the Lord? Or wanted some form of instant gratification, wanting to take the shortcut? In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, which was written as an allegory for the Christian life, there's a scene where the pilgrim traveler named Christian encounters two persons who jump over the wall wanting to take a shortcut to the celestial city. They bypass the narrow or the wicked gate, saying that that other way through that gate was too inconvenient and roundabout. They wanted the gratification of glory in heaven without the pains of discipleship. They wanted to shortcut the process of sanctification, but they still wanted the blessings that were promised. The names of those persons were formality and hypocrisy. Another term for formality would be legalism. These two names form a merism, a bookending, providing the range of methods by which persons seek out other means of pleasing God and achieving that gratification without doing what he said other than what he has instructed. 
All of them are ultimately disobedience. Legalism on the one end seeks to create its own rules for pleasing God and adds rules upon rules upon rules, often disguised as in religious language that sounds great. But it's really a distant relative to the truth of Scripture. It places tremendous burdens and guilt on persons. Legalism undermines Christ's words, which he said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hypocrisy on the opposite end is a person who claims to be a Christian, but instead of having extra rules and regulations, has none. They live like the world while claiming to live for Christ. This is the person who has the fish sticker on the back of their car while blowing their horn, yelling at drivers, and cutting others off in traffic. It's the father who yells and is verbally abusive to his family or others, but shows up to church or Bible study, puts on a face of being serious about spiritual things. It's the person who lives their life however they want during the week, but when it comes to church on Sunday, they show up and they put on a face so they can convince themselves and try to convince others that they are somehow at peace with God. Paul writes to Titus saying in Titus 1.16, They that is the disobedient, the ungodly, profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In other words, this is exactly what we've read. God wants nothing from them. He doesn't want their worship. He doesn't want their actions until there is obedience and love. We have here in Haggai, Israel presented once again as an example to us. That's what Paul says. That's why it's here. It's an example to us. It was an example to them. Their own history was. It was an example to later generations. Paul says it's an example to us. Haggai highlights for them what is true for us today as well, that it is easy to sin. It is so easy to sin. That's our natural tendency. No one needs to teach us how to do that. I've got four children. I'm well aware of that fact. What is hard is obedience, sanctification, and pursuing holiness. And God presents through Haggai the answer to sin, the answer to breaking the cycle and the pattern of sin that pollutes our lives and affects those around us, because that's really the implied question. If it's so easy to communicate sin, to collect sin, to be polluted by sin, how do I purify myself? And he presents the answer. How do you break that cycle? Repentance. Framed in verse 17 as returning to God. That is the core of repentance, returning to God, turning away from sin to pursue God and what he says. There's much we could say here by way of warning against the dangerous effects of sin in these verses, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the second half of this message provides both that solution for sin, returning to God, as well as the promise of blessing. As one commentator notes, the sermon concludes on a surprisingly optimistic note of promise. The prophet sees in the people evidence of genuine repentance and turning to God, to the Lord in light of which there is prospect of great hope in the days ahead and in eternity. So how do we do that? How do we practice returning to the Lord? How do we practice repentance? What does it look like? Practically speaking, it means making a habit of praying through those Beatitudes that we studied a few months ago, walking through Matthew 5. 
Acknowledging your spiritual poverty, your need for the Lord's strength in this battle against sin. Be careful not to ignore sin in your life. Do not brush it away as some little thing, no matter how little it may seem. Take the time to stop and confess it. If the Lord brings something to mind, confess it. Ask for forgiveness. In 1 John 1, 9, that is laid out as the practice. That's what it means. That's, that's the means by which we are cleaned and purified from sin. It's what makes us holy. It's what makes our worship acceptable. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us our sins. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray regularly. Make, that, make certain that part of your prayers involve identifying and confessing sin. That needs to be a daily habit. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you don't have any sin to confess. Because the very next verse in 1 John says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And I want to say this, if you never confessed your sins, you've never prayed for God's forgiveness, then I encourage you to do that today. Do not wait for tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Call out to God to forgive you of your sins, to make you his child, to experience the blessing and the hope of eternal life. Look at the promise that accompanies repentance and obedience for Israel. The end of verse 19, it is blessing from the Lord. Now, as New Testament believers, we don't have the specific promises Israel had regarding temporal blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience, such as land, produce, or drought and plague. In fact, for the New Testament Christian, our blessing is more often future, not temporal. Certainly, everything we have is from the Lord, and we give thanks for that, but we are not specifically promised certain temporal things, at least physical things. Doesn't mean God doesn't grant them at times, but there's no guarantee of those things. Rather, our blessing and hope is not on things in this life, but in the life to come. As James says in James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And turn with me, I've mentioned the Beatitudes two or three times now, turn with me to Matthew 5. We call them the Beatitudes, which is another way of saying blessings. These are the blessings for the believer. Jesus opened his mouth and began teaching there at the beginning in verse 2, saying in verse, beginning in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you notice what was consistent through all of those? It's their future. They're, most of them would be hard to identify as rewards we would even experience here on this earth. That's because for the believer, our greatest blessing is in the life to come. It doesn't mean we don't have blessings and we don't have joy on this earth. We praise the Lord for those things he has granted to us. And just because we look forward to that future hope and blessing doesn't mean we ignore what we have now. But remember, it is just a foretaste of that glory divine. He doesn't give us too much now because he doesn't want us to get satisfied with now. As Sarah Phillips notes, we are blessed because we know with utter certainty and conviction that our Heavenly Father loves us and knows what is ultimately good for us. But understand that this confidence, this assurance, and that blessing is only experienced when we are living a life of obedience and repentance. Let's pray. And I'm going to make note as I pray here. It's inescapable, the fact of what's been on the news lately. We know there are Christians who are suffering, and certainly in Afghanistan, but they're not the only ones. We've got brothers and sisters in Nigeria who every Sunday I get reports of the numbers that have been killed by Muslim herdsmen. So I'm going to pray for them as well and lift them up in our time together, and I encourage you to do that throughout the week. Father, we do thank you for the, what we've seen this morning. Help us to be doers of your word, not merely hearers, who desire to love you and to demonstrate that love through our obedience, to live it out. Father, help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our satisfaction of you, that you are really all that we long for, all that we hope for, all that we need. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Nigeria and so many other countries that are persecuted physically, that are suffering unjustly. We pray that you would be their hope, their comfort, their joy, their peace in the midst of this. We pray for their protection. And Father, we know this, this life is not all there is. Help to continue preparing them for the life to come as they probably long for it in a more real way than we will ever understand. Father, help us to make, help make us bold for your gospel. May your word do its work through your spirit. Pray these things in your name. Amen.